Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hello, friends, and welcome to Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, translated into 195 different languages. We are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. Please remember to support the companies that support us, Harborside, Homegrown, and Liberty Clothing, and keep your comments and questions coming. Remember to subscribe to this podcast. The earliest days of the cannabis freedom movement were built around the principle of freedom, the idea that each human being has the right to decide on their own what they put into their own bodies. And sometimes we made progress, sometimes we were pushed backwards. It was uneven and unsteady. It wasn't until we started embracing the idea of medical cannabis and the passage of Prop 215 in California that we started making steady and sustained progress towards our goal. Of course, since then, we've seen the majority of states in the United States pass reform measures, and the cannabis freedom movement has spread all over the world. There was a critical moment in the development of this movement and this change that came around 2008, 2009, when Obama was elected president of the United States. Myself and a number of other leaders of the cannabis freedom movement thought that it was time to create a legal cannabis industry with the idea that if an industry was created, and if we could bring the investor class into the cannabis freedom movement, that it could possibly become the biggest engine of reform. We knew we had to make progress given the nature of American politics. We expected that whoever came after Obama uh, would be ugly. We didn't know quite how ugly things would get, but we knew we had four or eight years to roll the ball of reform so far down the field that nobody could turn it back. And that was the impetus between, uh, behind the birth of the cannabis, uh, that was the impetus behind the birth of the legal cannabis industry. My guest today um, played a leading role in that transformation. He started his career as a activist, became a notable leader in the activist sphere of cannabis and then moved on, worked in a couple of my cannabis companies, and is now a leader of the industry, really a globally recognized personality. Uh, Please welcome today, Chris Crane, my good friend, president of the Mission Dispensaries and Forefront Group, a advocacy-focused multi-state cannabis operator. We'll talk a little bit more about what advocacy focus means as we get into it with Chris. But the first thing uh, that I'd like to talk about um, is uh, is something that sort of touched both Chris and I uh, in personal ways. And uh, and that's a a, uh, effort by the Department of Justice. So I'm gonna say welcome to Chris and welcome, Chris. (laughs) Great, thanks so much for having me on, Steve. It's great to be here with you. Thank you for coming. It's really wonderful to have you here today. Um, I want to get right into the meat of things and ask you uh, about the Department of Justice. You know, many folks uh, feel like the Department of Justice has really been quiet and and not uh, engaged much with the cannabis industry during the Trump administration. Um, as somebody who's you know fighting continuing litigation with the federal government myself, 
um, I know that there's actually behind the scenes still a, a quite a lot of struggle going on. Could you describe to me the the experiences, uh, the general things that uh, that happened with the Department of Justice in the last few years around antitrust enforcement? Sure. So it's it's an interesting topic because it's it's kind of sort of wonky, which I think is frankly part of, part of the reason why the Justice Department took this approach, uh, right? It's one thing if you're doing civil asset forfeiture and trying to take property away from uh, you know from from cannabis operators like they did with you in Harborside, um, or you know even going even further and sending you know DEA agents in to bust people um, who operate legal cannabis businesses, um, right? Those are very high profile. They a lot of press around it. Um, it's very easy to fight back. Um, and I think uh, you know, Attorney General Barr seems like was sort of smart enough to realize that there was another avenue to uh, go after the cannabis industry that wouldn't be so easy to to counter um, and, and wouldn't be a sort of a sexy PR topic uh, up until just recently when it did kind of blow up in his face, thankfully. Um, but they, they've so what they've done is they've started going after companies that are trying to initiate mergers in the space. Um, and when companies merge, and this is any companies in, in, in general in the United States, if the resulting entity is going to be above a certain size, um, and they judge that by the, 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 the valuation of the resulting company, um, you have to uh, basically submit an application to the Department of Justice so that they can do an antitrust review and make sure that you're not gonna be setting up some sort of uh, unjust monopoly. Um, and if the Justice Department decides that they, they want to know more information, they have the ability to issue what's called a second request, uh, where they ask for a lot more information. And these second requests, uh, I mean, they, they are literally requesting thousands and thousands of pages of documentation. Um, they, and they typically only go, uh, they only typically send these to really large company mergers. So like Sprint PCS. Like that, that level of, of, of merger will get a second request from the Department of Justice because there's only a small handful of, of wireless companies and they want to make sure that they're not setting up an anti-competitive environment. So what happened a little over a year ago was all of a sudden, all of these cannabis mergers and cannabis acquisitions um, were all of a sudden getting second requests, um, which seemed odd given that number one, the cannabis industry is not legal federally uh, to begin with, but number two, there is no AT&T or Sprint in cannabis yet. Um, in many cases, these companies were um, operating in completely different states and operating in different ends of the vertical. Some were re you know, retailers merging with cultivators, and yet they were all getting these, uh, these second request uh, letters from the Justice, the Justice Department. And these second request letters take usually nine months to a year to comply with. Um, and can cost a company you know millions of dollars um, to go through that entire process. Um, and it, it, it was it came out in um, uh, uh, hearings at the in the house just a few uh, it was last month, I believe, um, that this was this was done intentionally by Attorney General Barr because he doesn't like the cannabis industry and saw this as a means to harass the cannabis industry, you know, without the sort of pomp and circumstance that would come with you know armed. DEA agents, you know, marching into a dispensary and raiding somebody. And unfortunately, Forefront was caught up in that. We, uh, we, were, we were involved in a merger with a company called Canex. We received the second request letter and we had to go through this long and laborious process, which put off our merger by, you know, uh, at least six months. Uh, I think it was six or seven months. Um, and, and ours was one of the fastest ones to go through that process. Um, so it's been a, it's been a real 
challenge and, uh, and, 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 and a real hardship for companies having to go through this when there really is no credible concern about antitrust or anti-competitive behavior. So to paraphrase, the Department of Justice has used the antitrust laws, targeted them against the legal cannabis industry as a way of slowing down the growth of the industry and uh, as a way of making the, the growth of that industry more expensive. Uh, and that's absolutely right. That's really consistent with, with what I've seen in my own experience. Uh, another one of the battles that's being waged behind the scene is the 280E tax battle. And uh, if you don't know about 280E, Google it, um, learn about it. If you love cannabis, you should know what 280E is. It's a tax provision, essentially, that uh, puts an unequal tax burden on cannabis businesses, which falls especially heavily on cannabis retailers, particularly cannabis retailers that are freestanding retailers, small mom and pop shops that don't have the money to have their own cultivation or their own distribution are most heavily uh, impacted by this. So behind the scenes in ways that don't draw a lot of public attention, the Trump administration has continued the Department of Justice's long-standing campaign to suppress cannabis and keep it from becoming legal. Chris, uh, looking ahead, um, I think you and I both know that we can probably expect more of this out of the Department of Justice um, un unless there's some intervening force. Looking, looking ahead to the election, uh, let's you know, consider the two possible outcomes we, we have now. Unfortunately, we, we can't consider what the Bernie Sanders outcome would have been, but let's think about Biden. Um, what, what do you think uh, a Biden victory would mean for the movement in the industry? It's a big question, and I, I don't think anybody really knows at this point um, because, you know, unfortunately, Biden traditionally has been one of the worst Democrats in Washington, D.C. when it comes to the issue of cannabis and drug policy. Um, you know, back when I was working at Normal and SSDP and, and, and you know, as a professional activist in, in D.C., you know, we had basically two Democrats on the, the, the Democratic side of the aisle in the Senate that we considered our, our biggest enemies, and that was uh, Dianne Feinstein and Joe Biden. Um, and, uh, you know, he, I mean, he, Biden... Uh, as I'm sure your listeners are maybe familiar, uh, he he was the one of the architects of the um, of the crime bill in the 90s. He was a huge champion for draconian anti-drug measures in the 80s. Uh, he said that you know Reagan and Bush's um, drug war efforts didn't go far enough. Um, called drug use the number one you know number one enemy of our of our nation. Um, and to be fair, you know Biden has softened his position quite a bit. Um, in recent years. I think if there's one thing you can say about Joe Biden, it's he's very good at finding where the center of the Democratic Party is. And in this case, he's still right of center, but um, he's not where he used to be. Uh, he now supports decriminalization and letting states implement their own legalization laws and medical marijuana, which basically puts his position on cannabis in line with Barack Obama's position as a candidate in 2008, um, which you know at the time was fairly progressive, but today I would argue is uh, just unacceptable for the Democratic Party standard bearer, given how far the party's moved. Um, but all of that said, I I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about what a Biden administration 
would mean for cannabis reform um, in spite of Joe Biden himself. Um, and that's because the party has moved so far on this issue. Um, the congressional Democrats, Senate Democrats, by and large, really get this issue. Um, they get the nuances of it in a way that they didn't, uh, even when Obama was president. I think their time in the wilderness has, has, has caused them to take a deeper look at this. Uh, the party has moved further to the left, further to the left in general. And I, I think we're at a point where, you know, despite the fact that Biden probably wouldn't like it, um, he probably wouldn't stop it if a Democratic controlled House and Senate were to send some sort of legalization bill to his desk. I don't think that he could veto it at this point. And I think he's going to have enough people around him in his administration who understand this issue and understand the political implications that they, they, would, they would likely encourage Biden to go along with reform, you know, even if it's not his his preference and it's not uh, something that he initiates. I think the Democrats in general are there enough that they're going to push him and we can expect to see some sort of reform in a Biden administration. So even though Biden himself doesn't seem to have changed his views very much, the Democratic Party has changed a lot in the in, in this yes. period of time, right? Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that I've been advising people who live in swing states to do is before you cast that vote, if you're considering casting it for Biden, is to get in touch with the campaign and let them know that cannabis is your most important issue. Let them know that this is a vote that you're, you're going to cast, but you're going to cast it very reluctantly. And, and tell them, send a message to them as clearly as you can that Biden needs to embrace cannabis reform. Let's make sure that, that if our friends in the Democratic Party are able to get a measure through the House and the Senate, which would be huge, that we have a president who's going to sign the bill. Um, what about Trump? What do you think uh, would happen to the industry and the movement with a Trump victory? It's a good question. I mean, I think the most likely scenario is the, the status quo. It's basically what we've seen over the last four years likely continues. Um, I've seen no indication that this is an issue that Trump cares about one way or another. Um, he's certainly not pro-cannabis. Um, I don't think he's particularly anti Cannabis, other than he, you know, he doesn't he doesn't approve of people using it, but he also doesn't approve of people drinking alcohol, and that never stopped him from selling Trump wine or Trump vodka or you know getting into the alcohol business himself. Um, I think if he sees a political benefit to supporting legalization, he he might be open to doing it. But I think that window is closing, right? The, the political benefit's not going to be there after this election. If he wants to gain political benefit from, from this issue, he needs to come out in support of legalization before November. And he probably could take some voters from, from Biden uh, in some of those swing states if he were to do that. Um, but I think given everything that's going on in the world, the chances of that are, are much less. My biggest concern would actually be less with, with Trump himself and more with Attorney General Barr. Um, I see no indication that Barr would leave in a Trump second term. Um, Trump seems quite enamored with him. He tends to use the attorney general as his personal attorney, um, has turned the, the Justice Department into a political department in a way that it's really never been. Um, and we now know from this testimony before Congress that Barr does not like the cannabis industry and has already used the Justice Department um, to go after the cannabis industry. And what would concern me would be uh, it would be the attorney general unfettered by, um, by political reelection concerns for his boss um, with sort of the gloves off. Um, and and that, that worries me because the Justice Department, as, as you well know, uh, Steve, that uh, you know, they've got tremendous power um, and, uh, and, and can basically do what they want on this issue. So if he really has it in for the, the cannabis industry and wants to start civil asset forfeiture back up or wants to start raids, 
he could do it. I think it would be politically more, a little more challenging or just from a PR perspective um, than it was during the Clinton or Bush administrations. Uh, but there is a lot that the Justice Department could do. And I think the problem with Trump not caring about this issue, and all indications are he doesn't care, like I said, one way or another, is if Trump doesn't care about an issue one way or another, he's not gonna give more than five seconds worth of thought to it. And so I think that would leave somebody like Barr pretty unfettered to, um, to go after the cannabis industry in whatever way he felt was most, uh, you know, most appropriate and most palatable. I worry about exactly the same thing. I worry that as Barr becomes more and more valuable to Trump as his sword and as his shield, as somebody who, Trump may literally depend on to keep himself in office, that Barr's star rises. Barr has more power. And what we know about Barr is that on the cannabis issue, he has had an archaic position for a long, long time. He still clearly holds that position. But beyond that, Barr has a philosophical commitment to increasing the power of the executive branch of the government, i.e. the Department of Justice and the president to become supreme over all other branches of government, a fundamental restructuring of the system of balance of powers that we have in the United States. Barr has been a dangerous person long before he became attorney general, and he's even more dangerous now. So uh, to all of you who do live in swing states, who have the ability to vote in this election, no matter how you intend to vote, please, be active in communication with the campaigns. Get as far up the ladder as you can. All of your friends who are voting the same way, mobilize them. Let's send a really clear message to politicians across the entire spectrum, uh, wherever they are. Chris, um, I want to talk to you now about your, your career trajectory. Um, you know, you have been really spectacularly successful first in rising to, you know, one of the most noted leadership positions in the cannabis movement, uh, director of students for sensible drug policy, and then um, uh, eventually ending up in the role that you now play at, uh, at Forefront and Mission Dispensaries as president of a huge, one of the largest cannabis companies in, in the world. Talk to us a little bit about that trajectory. You know, where did you start and, 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 and what led you to become an activist and, and how did that merge into, into industry? Yeah, so you know, this is an issue that I, I thought a lot about growing up um, from a fairly young age. Um, it, you know, it goes back to you know, my, fa my father was a medical cannabis patient uh, when I was quite young. He passed away when I was eight years old. Um, he had used cannabis um, to treat a, a rare genetic form of emphysema, uh, which you know, a lot of people might think that you know, smoking, so, smoking something for a lung condition is, is counter, is, would be counterproductive, but we, we understand now that um, cannabis is a vasodilator. It actually opens the lung passages, helps somebody uh, draw breath. And uh, when he would have these horrible breathing attacks when I was, when I was young, he would take a couple of hits off a joint. Uh, you know, vaporizing was not an option back in, in 1985, 1986. Um, so he would smoke a joint and he could breathe. And I could see that at a very young age and how helpful that was. Um, and as I got older and started going through uh, you know, drug education in the 80s and, and 90s, uh, New York City's equivalent of the D.A.R.E. program, um, I really questioned what I was being told about uh, cannabis because it, it did not jive with 
the experience that I had had um, watching it help my father in the last years of his life. Um, you know, at the same time, I'd also seen the very real world impact of substance abuse uh, in my family, um, had uh, some very close family members that suffered from heroin addiction, um, even some who died from heroin addiction. Um, so I, I, I just kind of grew up thinking a lot about how do we deal with drugs in this country and does the criminalization of uh, drugs uh, help the situation or, or make it worse. And it was pretty clear to me that, you know, cannabis was, it's sort of its own thing and, and needed to be treated as legal and regulated like, you know, like alcohol or, or, or like, uh, you know, like, like, like any other you know, more benign substance, uh, cannabis certainly well more, way more benign than alcohol. Um, and other drugs uh, that have more uh, higher potential for abuse need to be treated as a public health issue um, with an end to prohibition. Um, so by the time I got to college, uh, I, I joined the normal chapter at American University, uh, which became one of the first ever chapters of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Um, and uh, because I was in Washington, D.C., I was able to sit down and talk with folks like uh, Arnold Traybach and, and Kevin Zeese and um, uh, Bill Piper at the Drug Policy Alliance and um, you know, had tr tremendous access to that, to that network. Uh, Keith Strop at Normal um, ended up doing my thesis uh, on political science on drug policy and started interning at Normal's national office, figured if I'm going to spend my senior year writing a thesis on this issue, why don't I go and immerse myself in it? Um, so interned at Normal, that turned into a job literally the day after graduation, uh, over six years at Normal, uh, rose to uh, the associate director of the national organization, uh, which led me back to Students for Sensible Drug Policy and, and ran that organization as executive director for four years. Um, so really spent you know, the better part or more than a decade in, in Washington, D.C., working professionally as an activist. And it was when I was leaving SSDP in uh, late 2009, mid to late 2009, um, and was thinking about my next steps that I, I got drawn to the emerging industry. And I, I, I owe you a ton of credit for that um, on, on a couple of levels. You know, it was, it was, it was going through Harborside in 2008, 2009, uh, when you guys were, were one of my bigger donors at SSDP. So thank you again for that. Um, but coming through and doing the tours with you. And I remember being on a, I was on a tour that you were giving, I was still at SSDP at the time with a couple of uh, Oakland police uh, officers, uh, Oakland police department officers. I don't know if you, I don't know if you remember this, you gave thousands of tours back in the day. Um, but, you know, we went through the whole place and we saw how, you know, how well managed the store was run, how professional it was, how tight the inventory controls were. And as we we're walking out, these police officers said something to you like, yeah, you're not somewhere we're ever going to have to worry about. This is great. You guys are fine. You know, we're going to go worry about real crime. And it was like a light bulb moment for me that you know, if we could, if, if just giving a tour, right, a one hour tour of Harborside to these police officers, which is not exactly your core constituency for legalization, um, and they could walk out of there going, I'm not worried about this in my community, then it, it just occurred to me that the industry is going to do as much to advance the, the, the issue and change public perception as the work that I had been doing in the nonprofit world up to that point. That, that what you were doing at Harborside and some of those early operators, right? Harborside, Berkeley Patients Group, Peace and Medicine, um, right? Some of these early model stores that were pretty much all in Cal California, predominantly Northern California, uh, that what they were doing was changing the perception that people had in their heads of what cannabis looked like. And that's, tremendously important when the when when the only the only 
image of cannabis commerce that most people had was the stereotype of, you know, a shady street corner drug deal or a couple of burnouts in their parents' basement. And like, we know that's not actually what it really was for most people, but that's the stereotype people had driven in their head. And without the ability to perceive what a post-prohibition world would truly look like in a legal and regulated environment, people were going to default to not supporting legalization. They were going to go back to their default position. And so I decided right there, I needed to get into this industry. Um, and yeah, it'd be great to, you know, not be, not work on a nonprofit salary for the rest of my life. Uh, that was nice. Um, but, but it was, I never saw the industry as anything other than an extension of the advocacy movement and that what we were doing was doing as much to change public perception. So I joined you uh, at Canby, uh, which was a, you know, an early pioneering uh, uh, consulting company. We helped people win licenses and, and set up their dispensaries uh, in the model of, of Harborside. Um, we were a little bit ahead of our time um, and uh, <laughs> it didn't, didn't quite work out, but it was a lot of fun. I learned a ton uh, from working with folks like you and, and James Anthony and, and Robert Jacob. Um, and that led to the founding of Forefront when, when Canby um, you know, didn't work out. Uh, one of our clients was, uh, was Josh Rosen, who uh, was at the time working for um, John Sperling, the founder of the University of Phoenix, a longtime drug policy reform uh, donor and, and philanthropist. And uh, we put together an investment package, helped, uh, helped with some of Canby's debts by buying some of that intellectual property and use that to start Forefront. And you know, here we are almost 10 years later now, uh, a multi-state operator. Um, and still, I, I mean, the last thing I would say on this is I, I still view this the same way today as I did in 2010, 2009, that the industry very much is an extension of the advocacy movement. And I still try and keep that in mind thing that I do in the, uh, in the cannabis business world. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that, that the legal cannabis industry has been a tremendous force for reform. Uh, I doubt very seriously that we would have seen the kind of change both in the United States and around the world that we've seen uh, without it moving forward. Um, in the earliest days and still today, we've talked about that new industry you know, being more than just an industry like every other industry that exists in the world today. You know, we've been talking about creating a new kind of industry. And you know, now that we have um, both of us several years here of the, of the legal industry behind us, how do you think we've done on that, Chris, as an industry? Um, are, we, are we fulfilling the promise of creating a new kind of industry or, or are we just coming more to look like every other industry? I worry a little bit that it's, it's, it's a little too much of the latter. Um, you know, I worry that there's not enough, you know, uh, Steve D'Angelo's and Troy Dayton's uh, and Debbie Goldsberry's of the world that are, that are leading cannabis companies and that, um, you know, a lot are being run by folks who come from other industries and are trying to run their businesses like other industries. Um, and look, to an extent that has to happen, right? This is becoming a, a highly regulated industry, best practices that have worked in commercial agriculture or large scale consumer packaged goods are going to ultimately be what works in cannabis. Um, but I do worry a little bit that at a company level, folks are starting to get away from the values that the cannabis plant teaches us um, and that we should be holding you know, first and foremost in our minds as we set up our companies and do business. That said, I do think the cannabis industry by and large is better than other industries. Um, and I think that has to do with, you know, the fact that, you know, you help lay this groundwork and have been, you know, uh, such a strong voice in, uh, in, in, in setting up what the industry needs to look like. And I think people take that seriously. Um, I think if there, you know, if there's one thing that, that 
we're starting to see a, a major awareness around. It's the issue of social equity, um, the, the, the reality of the fact that you know, black and brown people, people of color, young people have borne the disproportionate brunt of marijuana prohibition enforcement uh, for decades. And that if we are going to really set up a different kind of industry, this industry needs to include um, paths to ownership and to uh, participation for those communities. Um, a few years ago, I was a little more worried about uh, the, the new sort of titans of the cannabis industry understanding that. And I'm starting to see more of it. And I think some of it is a product of just there's more awareness around this in general. Uh, you know, give a lot of credit to folks like Shailene Title, former colleague of mine, who is now one of the commissioners in Massachusetts, who has made this, you know, her, her driving issue. Um, but also, frankly, we've set up uh, structures industry that have kind of forced some of the, um, the the bigger companies to embrace equity, even if they, you know, they didn't necessarily care or want to, but because it's the best thing for them to do for their business right now, right? In a lot of states, you can't get a license if you're not an equity applicant, particularly in some of these newer Midwest and Northeast um, states with, with more limited licenses, um, where you have very diverse, um, you know, uh, very diverse uh, legislative caucuses, they've set up systems where it's very difficult for someone who is not an equity applicant to get a license um, to big shift from what we saw just a few years ago. And that has really forced some of these larger companies to think about, you know, how can we get involved in that? Um, and, and how can we start backing some of these folks who really deserve to be in the industry, but traditionally uh, have been left on the sidelines? Yeah, I, 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 you know, Oakland was the, was the first city, the first jurisdiction anywhere, and Oakland likes to lead in these things to implement a social equity policy. And for those of our viewers from around the world, social equity uh, is a pretty simple concept. It just um, refers to the idea that we need to make sure that the people who suffered the most in the war on cannabis are the people that have the best opportunities to participate in the legal industry, uh, rather than people who never suffered, who never sacrificed, uh, just coming in and reaping these rewards. And a number of different uh, techniques have been used to do that. One of them has been the passage of social equity licensing provisions. And these licensing provisions basically require the applicant to demonstrate in their application how they are going to provide opportunity and benefits to the people who are disproportionately affected by this horrible war that's been waged on, this, on us. And of course, that's mostly black and brown people. Those mechanisms have been more successful in some jurisdictions, less successful in other jurisdictions. It's a process that's still being worked through. But one of the things that, that Chris and I have talked about for a long time, uh, haven't been able to make it real yet, but hope to, is the idea that the industry itself, uh, and especially investors in the industry, might step up to the plate and provide uh, the, the equity licensees, uh, equity-based um, entrepreneurs who want to carve out a place in the legal industry, the kind of capital that typically isn't made available to communities of color in the United States. Chris, you, you want to sketch out that idea for us? 
Yeah, I mean, this is something we've talked about for for years now. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I, I I have not had the time to you know, given my day job, um, you know, focus on 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 making this a reality yet. Although I have had a lot of conversations with folks um, throughout the industry about about doing something like this, and even even sketched out um, uh, with with Shalene Title actually while she was working with me at Forefront, we kind of sketched out a plan for how what something like this might look like. And you know, the idea was to to set up a essentially an investment fund that's structured somewhat like a grant foundation um, where you know, money would be given to, to entrepreneurs of color in the cannabis industry, um, uh, but not just with a financial return attached, but also with um, requirements that they, they, they set up the businesses with a path to ownership and management for uh, for other people of color and people from disproportionately impacted communities. So it's not just a top-down model, but really a bottom-up model. So you're empowering entrepreneurs who then agree to put policies and protocols in place to hire from these communities, to promote from these communities, to set folks up uh, and train them so that they can then go out and start their own businesses, um, which, which, which could actually be funded with some of the returns from uh, these funds. So we, 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 were, we were envisioning this where um, you, know, you would evaluate the success of the businesses, not just on the financial success, although that you, would have to, you would have to take that in, in mind. Um, but if you structure this as a benefit corporation, you would also look at their ability to meet milestones, to receive more money based on meeting those non-financial milestones, like how many people from disproportionately impacted communities have you hired? When you've, had op when you've had openings at higher level positions, how many of these folks have you promoted? What kind of training programs have you put in place to, uh, to, to, to ensure the success of folks that you bring in who may have come from a, a more uh, disadvantaged background, may not have the educational background or the business background? How are you setting these folks up for success? Um, and so I, I still think there is a, a, a lot of room for something like this. Uh, in the industry. And, and not only do I think there's a lot of room, I think it's necessary. Um, you know, one thing that we're finding right now, unfortunately, in the, as the industry grows, is that because financial institutions are still not available to us, um, you know, because institutional investment is still not an option uh, in the cannabis industry. We still have to rely on individual investors, angel investors, family offices when you can find them, is that because the industry has now gotten so much more mature, while there is more money coming into the industry, that money is much more likely to want to put it into, uh, those investors are much more likely to want to put their money into established companies, um, companies that have a track record um, where, where, where their investment is much more de-risked. Uh, five, six, seven years ago, everybody was a startup. Uh, now an investor can buy, you know, thousands of shares in Cresco or GTI or Forefront or, uh, you know, or, or, or any number of, of, of MSOs that have a track record out there. And so even though there's more money in the industry for the smaller mom and pops and particularly for the equity operators, it's actually more challenging in some ways for them to go out and raise capital. And so I think as an industry, we need to figure out ways that we can help funnel some of that capital that's going to the more established operators into the coffers of the mom and pops and particularly the equity operators who we really need to be successful if this truly is going to be a different kind of industry. Yeah, I, I think that one of the issues that we've seen with the social equity programs is this lack of capital. You have an equity licensee who comes from a disproportionately affected community who is given a license because of the licensing provisions, but then doesn't have the ability to capitalize that, that, that business on their own and is forced to go out to the investor pool. In most circumstances, the equity 
uh, licensees don't have the level of deal sophistication, financial sophistication that the investors they're engaging with do. And all too frequently, we've seen equity deals, equity licenses, which really have mostly become vehicles for the enrichment of investors and serve more as a fig leaf than really an effective mechanism to build equity in the industry. It's one of the reasons that I'm really a fan of this idea of building a fund, and I think it should be substantial. We should not be thinking of less than $100 million, uh, just as um, we, you know, we now have the Last Prisoner Project. I was really pleased to hear in my last board call with the Last Prisoner Project that there are 160 dispensaries participating in the Last Prisoner Project, Roll It Up for Freedom program, which just asks uh, consumers to donate the change from their purchase to the Last Prisoner Project. Mission dispensaries are one of the earliest dispensaries to support that program. And so we see the companies and we see the consumers in the industry really stepping up to the plate and putting their dollars on the line. I would like to see a mechanism whereby investors in the industry would be able to play that same kind of role. And this is the way we could do it. So uh, those of you who are listening to, to this show, who are sophisticated in investment, who do have sources of capital, I will say this to you, that if you love this plant and you listen to the lessons that she teaches you, then you should seriously consider adopting the creation of this fund as your personal mission. It's, a, it's an urgent need and it will be a rich legacy to, to, to build and create for yourself. So please, if you can, do that job. Chris, um, you know, we've both gone through this kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a kind of wrenching experience to be honest with you, going from uh, activist organizations that are really filled with people who, uh, whose priorities are the plant and the lessons that the plant teaches us to being in a corporate environment where necessarily we are engaging with people, we are working with people, we are in companies with people whose priorities are not necessarily driven by the cannabis plant. Their priorities are driven by different, by you know, traditional business motivation to maximize profit, to maximize efficiency. And I know that for me, there have come times where there was really a big conflict between my activist values and my business values. Uh, and I imagine the same is true for you. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I like to think that when those conflicts arise, I try and you know, wear my activist hat above all. Um, I don't know if I've done it every single time, but, but I do always try and um, think about, you know, if I were just an activist still and not in the business, what would I think about this? Um, and then, you know, is it possible for me to really uh, go forward, you know, go forward in that position? And by and large, I, I think it's, it's, by and large, I think we've been able to do that. You know, one of the areas that that this has really um, that really stood out to me has been over this this debate around uh, home cultivation. Uh, we saw this play out in New York a few years ago, where all of the not all the operators, but the the trade association representing the operators there uh, sent a letter to Governor Cuomo, um, uh, encouraging him to not allow home cultivation in the legalization bill. Um, there uh, and, and they came up with a whole bunch of you know public safety focused um, uh, reasons for for doing that um, and you know at the time we were starting to have that debate here in Illinois where I currently live around the legalization bill and whether home grow should be included um, it was a real debate amongst the companies and, and I'm not going to out those who 
took what I think was the wrong position, but um, there were plenty that were, you know, that initially were trying to advocate um, to not allow consumers to grow their own because the thinking is this is going to be better for our bottom line. If people have to buy from us and can't grow their own, right, it's more money for us. And I just could not allow myself to go there um, despite the argument that there may be financial benefit in doing so. And so I wrote a column, I write for Forbes and I wrote a column at that time um, called Don't Be Greedy. Um, that cannabis companies should support home cultivation. Um, and, and, and what I'd like to, what I'd like to do in these types of situations is not only just, you know, not just scold people for taking the wrong position because that doesn't, that doesn't usually work, but also try and lay out the, the business rationale for making the right decision. Um, and in this case, it was, you're being short-sighted by saying that, 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 that people shouldn't be allowed to grow, at, grow at home and they should only be allowed to buy from us. Because what you're doing in saying that is alienating your core consumer base. Because um, the reality is people who cultivate cannabis at home are cannabis enthusiasts, right? By and large, they're people who really love cannabis. And those people also tend to buy a lot of cannabis products. So just like the person who brews their own beer at home, they're not just drinking the like crappy IPA that they're brewing in their basement, right? They're doing that because it's fun and they're sharing it with their friends, but they're also going out and they're buying lots of beer, right? They're doing it because they love beer and they buy lots of other kinds of beer. And so the person who's growing a you know, mediocre blue dream strain in their basement is also going to the store and buying all the great strains that are available there. They're also buying vape pens and they're buying uh, uh, edibles and all of the other products that they're not making in their home, right? They're not doing BHO extraction in their basements. And if a company's out there saying they shouldn't be allowed to grow at home, that person's not going to buy from that company. Um, they're going to go elsewhere to companies that they feel share their values. Um, and we know that about 20% of cannabis consumers make up about 80% of cannabis purchases, um, right? The enthusiasts buy a lot relative to everybody else. And by taking this type of position, because you think it helps your bottom line, you're actually hurting your bottom line. And so I try to appeal to my colleagues and, um, you know, and, and competitors uh, in the space, not just from a what's right and wrong standpoint, but also why this is good for their bottom line. Um, you know, I'll give you one other example, um, something that we just dealt with, you know, our, our store here on the South side of Chicago, uh, was recently raided, uh, not raided, I should say, thankfully, um, but was looted, um, during, uh, some of the civil unrest around the, the George Floyd protests. And you, we, we could have taken the position, um, that, uh, that, that these protests are violent and, uh, that we are a victim in all of this. And I was really proud of my staff, uh, especially at Mission uh, South Chicago, the store that was, that was impacted, and quite badly. I mean, we were closed for two months. We just, just reopened uh, this past Friday. Um, that, you know, these folks come from that community, and they understood that the people that were, that were looting these stores were not the protesters and didn't reflect the, uh, the values of the protesters, but were opportunists who were taking advantage of the fact that, you know, law enforcement was... Uh, preoccupied with everything else that was going on, and they knew that they could try and, and, and break into places and raid places. Um, and our, you know, our team came out very forcefully in support of the protesters. A couple of days after we were raided, they were out there in the streets in that neighborhood with the protesters, voicing their support for um, the, you know, the, 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 the recognizing the fundamental humani fundamental humanity of Black and Brown people. And we're very clear that we don't want to be seen as the victims here. Like, yeah, it sucks that we were raided and it sucks that this is going to cost us a lot of money and we're going to be out of business for a little while, but this should not detract from the very important message uh, that 
that's being shouted in streets all across the country. And that what happened to us is not representative of and does not speak for those voices. So I was really proud of our team for, for recognizing their, their advocacy ideals and holding true even during a very difficult personal circumstance. I too was proud of the way that Harborside and, and most of the companies that have been looted responded. Um, and, you know, the general attitude was the attitude that you expressed, which is, yes, you know, we suffered some inconvenience, we suffered some financial losses, but that compared to the grievous Holocaust, really, that's been waged on black and brown people in this country, uh, those losses are, are, are negligible and that the, that the greater import of what has happened over the course of the last few months uh, far overshadows uh, any kind of personal losses. Um, but still, you know, you're, you're thinking about people who, whose jobs have been threatened and then going back out in the street. So um, good job with your employees. Good job to, I think, pretty much by and large to the cannabis industry as it was impacted by looting. Um, Chris, I want to go back to this conversation we are having around the homegrown issue. And, you know, what I, I really... Um, have a lot of sympathy for you in that conversation because the role that I think that you've occupied and that I've occupied many times is as a translator, is really trying to explain between these two different worlds what the priorities are, what the principles and values are between the business world, the mainstream business world, and the cannabis community, and trying, as the plant teaches us to do, to find win-win solutions, to use the light of reason to find something that, that works for everybody. And I've long believed that the most successful cannabis companies are going to be the companies that bring in very powerful mainstream business talent, but marry it up with the kind of experience, the kind of conscience, the kind of understanding of the values that cannabis teaches us that Chris and I have been discussing here in the podcast. Um, we're uh, rolling in towards the end of this show, and I really wanted to make a little bit of time, Chris, to talk about you outside of your professional realm. Uh, you have contemporaneously built a career in cannabis and become a father. And, uh, and you know, I know that that role must have led to some challenging moments. How have, how have you negotiated it? What advice do you have for um, for other dads, other moms who are uh, involved with cannabis, who have young children? It's a great question. Uh, yeah, I mean, my, you know, greatest achievement in my life is, is, you know, not been, not necessarily been my cannabis work, but it's been my family work and um, the wonderful kids that uh, my wife and I are bringing up. And my wife deserves way more credit for that than I do. Um, uh, she's borne the, you know, the brunt of, of, of raising the kids while I've been on this crazy cannabis journey. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, very fortunate First of all, that I have a, a partner, uh, my wife Jenny, who you know really understands what it is that that I do, and I mean she was an activist herself. We met when she was on the board of directors uh, of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. She ran a chapter at Roosevelt University, um, so you know we we have very similar values, and we've really tried to instill those in our children. Um, I get questioned a lot about you know do you talk to your about what you do, and do you talk to your kids about cannabis, and they say absolutely. Um, they know what cannabis is. They understand it. Um, they uh, they know that it's illegal some places and legal other places, and that you know mom and dad have been fighting for a long time to 
try and try and make it legal. Uh, they understand that it's not for kids. Um, you know, just like parents can drink alcohol around their kids and kids understand it's, you know, this is for grownups. Kids understand the same thing around cannabis, um, right? And we be careful not necessarily smoke around them because of, um, you know, I don't necessarily want them exposed to any kind of direct smoke, um, whether cannabis or otherwise, but um, they've seen me vape. Uh, they, you know, they, they understand that I, I enjoy cannabis and that it helps me um, m medically. Um, and they and they understand what we do. I mean, I, you know, I just just uh, a few months ago, earlier this year, when we opened um, for adult use here in Illinois, uh, I was on the news quite a bit for a couple of days uh, around the the opening of that. And my kids were watching me on the on the evening news each night. And you know, I, I came home one day from 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 the store, and my my kindergartner was five at the time. Uh, he says to me, "Dad, did you sell cannabis today?" I said, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, Theo, I did. And he goes, are you going to be on TV today? I said, no, not today. Uh, but, you know, he, he associated selling cannabis with being on television, which I think he thought was very cool. Um, but I just don't hide it from them. And we're very, you know, very honest. Now, my, look, my, my kindergartner um, understands it at a level that's a little bit different than my, my second grader, no, soon to be third grader. Um, she's an unbelievably politically astute uh, eight-year-old. Um, we were actually talking about presidential elections back when she was four uh, the last time around, and she she understood it better than a four-year-old should. And so she kind of gets the political implications here. She asks me about where is it legal and where is it not. And you know, it's not fair that it's not legal in Wisconsin where her grandparents live, but it's legal here in Illinois where we live, even though it's a, you know, an, a 45 minute drive away. Um, and so we, we talk honestly and openly about it. And my hope is that when my kids get old enough that they start thinking about uh, trying cannabis themselves, that they're not going to go to their friends to learn what to use, when to use it, how to use it, but that they're going to feel comfortable coming to me and uh, to my wife and that we can have an honest and open conversation with them about what's appropriate use and, and when they should be using it and, and, and being careful around, you know, you don't want to do it in school or try and get your homework done first. These kind of conversations, I feel like I'm fortunate in that my, my mother, my mother is a cannabis consumer. I knew she was a cannabis consumer when I was young. Um, and so when I got old enough that I started using cannabis in, in high school, I felt comfortable talking to her and she had that same conversation with me. It was, Hey, I'd be a, a giant hypocrite if I told you not to use it, but it is illegal, right? This was in the 1990s in New York City, and I don't want you getting arrested for it. So don't go out smoking on the street. Don't be stupid about it. Make sure, you know, don't go smoking and don't smoke and go to school, right? You're still young, your brain's developing. Make sure you get your homework done before you, you know, before you, <laughs> before you use it. And, uh, and because she was honest with me about that and not saying, hey, don't use this, uh, don't do it. I took that very seriously. And I think I was a much more responsible cannabis consumer because I had that experience. And that's the type of relationship uh, and relationship with cannabis that I want to be able to have with my own children as they, as they grow up. That is beautiful. I'm so glad to hear that you're doing that. And I think it's really important. Um, I know that there's a lot of our audience that is living in places where the cannabis laws are still very, very much stuck in prohibition and where there's a considerable risk to letting your child know what you do. I would encourage you all to take that risk anyhow. If we really want to build a world one day where cannabis is not stigmatized, where we all live in freedom, then we need to start teaching our children the truth from the beginning. And too often, I've seen cannabis parents out of the best of intentions uh, hiding their cannabis use or even lying about their cannabis use to their children. So please consider following Chris's example. Do it safely. Be honest with your kids. 
but let's start building the next generation of cannabis freedom warriors uh, now, today, because we're just getting started. Uh, there's a whole world yet that we need to move this movement around. Um, Chris, could you just briefly tell us what you're up to, your current projects, and uh, anything you might be thinking about in the future? Yeah, so um, good question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little busy with Forefront stuff these days, and you know, on the Forefront side, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about what we're doing at Mission. I think we've got a great mission-focused um, retail experience that's, that, that helps educate consumers about the history of cannabis and cannabis prohibition and doesn't, you know, we're not just selling them cannabis, but we're, we're trying to provide them an experience in our stores. Um, I'm also very excited about what we're doing on the production side. We've, um, you know, we've, we've gotten really focused on, uh, on low cost production at scale. Um, we're about to open a facility in uh, California that is going to be, we believe, the most highly automated uh, cannabis processing facility in the world. Um, and we think that will really help bring price down for consumers, um, especially in a market like California, where, you know, taxes are so high that people tend to, you know, people are, are still going to the, the gray market. Uh, we think we can produce products in, in, through the legal market in California that will be competitive with the gray market pricing through high, you know, high, high levels of automation. Um, and then, you know, I, I'm also involved in a project in uh, the country of North Macedonia. Um, I was fortunate enough to get involved in a project with my college roommate, uh, who happens to be Macedonian. Um, we just uh, were awarded a license by the Macedonian government there to uh, cultivate, uh, extract, and export uh, cannabis products to legal markets throughout Europe. Um, technically, could export anywhere, but it's, it's a European-focused project. Um, so looking forward to getting a little bit more involved internationally um, in, in cannabis projects. I've gotten to travel the world over the last few years and spoken at a number of international conferences and very excited about what's happening globally. The most exciting time for me in cannabis here in the U.S. was probably about 10 years ago or so when the industry was still new and everything was developing and it was all blue sky. Um, and that's kind of the case around the globe now. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm very excited about what's happening there and, and look forward to, to getting involved in more, you know, more international work when, when possible. Um, and then, you know, looking out a few years, uh, I, I'd like to spend more time at some point uh, when, when my schedule allows you know, working with companies in the space and, and, and playing more of that, that translator role that, that you mentioned um, and really trying to connect cannabis companies with the advocacy movement, um, you know, helping companies build their, um, you know, their, their, not just their philanthropy, um, but their sort of their social good uh, programs. Um, and, and, you know, having, having spent my career straddling the industry and the movement, um, I think I can, I think I can help play a role in, in connecting those two worlds um, and helping build projects that are mutually beneficial. Um, uh, it might and Betty Aldworth, who just left uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy as their executive director after six years. Uh, she and I have talked a lot about um, uh, this kind of work and, and how necessary it is. So um, that's something that, you know, down the road, I, I'd like to get a little more involved with because uh, I think it's important. And I think there are only a handful, a handful of us out there, folks like me and you, Troy Dayton, Betty, um, who have spent a lot of time on both sides of this uh, that can help you know, continue to bridge that divide as the industry continues to move forward. So lots of, lots of fun things ahead. Um, but right now uh, we got a lot going on at Forefront. Um, you know, we are an MSO and uh, I'm very excited about where we're going. We have a new CEO um, uh, that, we, that we brought on recently who is one of the best low cost producers at scale in the country. Um, and uh, I'm actually happy with hap what's happening with our stock lately. That's um, not something that many in the industry can say, although knock on wood, I hope it continues. Um, and really excited about what, uh, what Forefront's doing and I think where we're going over the course of the next, uh, next year or two. 
So thank you, Chris. Um, before I let you go, um, if you have any time in your busy schedule to answer questions from our audience, how should they send them to you? Sure. They can uh, reach me on uh, Twitter. Uh, my uh, handle is uh, Cranereck uh, with a K. Um, so you can reach me at, at Cranereck. Um, you can also find me on Facebook uh, or you can email me. Uh, you can contact me directly through the Forefront website. Uh, if you go to the contact us uh, page and uh, say that it's for Chris Crane, those do get to me. Um, so uh, folks can reach out to me through whatever medium uh, is most convenient to them, uh, except LinkedIn. Uh, I usually ignore the, my LinkedIn inbox for months at a time. So don't, don't do that. Uh, but find me on Facebook, on Twitter, um, uh, or through the Forefront website. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being with us uh, here today. I think that, you know, the trajectory that you've been on uh, is really an inspiration. It's inspiration for me because uh, as I've worked to create this legal industry, it's been my hope that really smart, dynamic, younger people like yourself would follow behind and carry that work forward. And I think that it's an inspiring example to the millions of young people who love cannabis around the world who are trying to figure out how to build a career in it. So thanks so very much for being with us. Thank you so much, Steve. And, and really, and, and just a, a broader thank you as well. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not the young activist I was when we first met, um, but uh, you know, I, I would not be where I am today were it not for you and the opportunity you provided me coming out of SSDP, moving out to Oakland, working on Canby, learning at Harborside. Um, and I know you've done that for so many other up and coming, um, both activists and entrepreneurs. Um, so I, I owe you a great debt of gratitude and um, I thank you for, for having me on here today with you. Well, thank you, Chris. Thanks so much for that kind appreciation. Um, we all strengthen uh, each other and, uh, and you've done that for me. I'm glad that I've been able to help do that for you. Thank you. You know, I think what we've heard in this show here today really is multiple stories of transition, transition from prohibition to legalization, transition from a movement to an industry, transition from being very young activists uh, to being more seasoned professionals. But the theme that keeps on coming back again and again is listening to the lessons that the cannabis plant teaches us and not just listening, but taking them seriously, seriously enough to roll up our sleeves and do the really hard, challenging, sometimes lonely work of finding out how to express those principles in real life organizations that do real business. I know that sometimes that can be very, very challenging to be there uh, in the middle. And I so appreciate both Chris and all of the activists who have taken that step to building not just another new industry, but building a new kind of industry that breaks the corporate mold and sets an example for every other industry around the world to follow. Thank you very much for being with us here today. Stay strong, be well. I'll see you next episode.